Welcome to the Outpouring Orlando Sermon Podcast. We exist to help people grow in Christ, share the gospel, and serve the community. Thank you so much for tuning in, and we hope you enjoy today's message. I want to read the first 17 verses, and this is the Apostle Paul writing to the people in the church in the church at Corinth. And here's what it says: 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1. Through 17, it says this, Paul, called as an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will, and Sosthenes, our brother, who's with Paul, he's a companion, to the church of God at Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called as saints with all those in every place who call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both their Lord and ours, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God for you because of the grace of God given to you in Christ Jesus. Verse 5 is important that you are enriched in him in every way, in all speech and in all knowledge. In this way, the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you so that you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly await wait for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. He will also strengthen you to the end. That is so important. If you're taking notes, you're going to need this word strengthened for the rest of our time through 1 Corinthians. I would underline verse 8 if I was a note taker. He will also strengthen you to the end so that you will be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 9, I will also underline the first three words. God is faithful. God is faithful. You were called by him into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so here from verses 10 on through 17, Paul will get to the heart of the matter. He'll address the first issue. Now, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree in what you say, that there be no divisions among you and that you be united with the same understanding and the same conviction. For it has been reported to me about you, my brothers and sisters, by members of Chloe's people. Chloe is a female member of the church. She has means maybe one of the churches or a group of believers in Corinth met in Chloe's house. She had enough space in her house to, to house several people. Many people believe she was a widow or maybe she was a businesswoman. But Chloe has people that are living in her house and they're meeting there and Chloe's people go and report to Paul that there is rivalry among the saints. Verse 12, what I'm saying is this. One of you says, no, I belong to Paul or I belong to Apollos or I belong to Cephas or I belong to Christ. And Paul asked this rhetorical question, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you or were you baptized in Paul's name? And Paul says, I thank God that I baptized none of you except for Christmas and Gaius so that no one can say you were baptized in my name. I did, in fact, baptize the household of Stephanas. Beyond that, I don't recall if I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with eloquent wisdom. I'm not trying to impress you so that the cross of Christ will not be emptied of its effects. Let us pray. Father, we thank you. We praise you. We bless you. We adore you today, God. We thank you that we have this amazing, amazing opportunity to study your word together. God, thank you that we have this opportunity, this privilege, this honor to grow in our faith through the studying of your word. And so, Father, I thank you right now for everything that you're going to do in our hearts 
and minds. I pray today, Father, that we will grow exponentially, Father. I pray that the Holy Spirit would work in our hearts, that, that it would do what can only be done by God. So, Father, I pray that no matter where we find ourselves in our faith, no matter how strong or how weak we are, God, we would believe that all things are possible with you, that we can do exactly what you've called us to do, not because of us, but because of you and your faithfulness. And so, Father, we thank you. We praise you. We bless you. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. From the sermon series, Possible, my sermon title is First Things First. First Things First. Last week was a very sad day for me, and it was a monumental day in the sports world. It was a monumental day in the sports world last week. I was, I was heartbroken because the greatest player of all time hung up his cleats. I am a Tampa Bay Buccaneers fan, and I was depressed about what happened. And so today, I, I want to I, I give sh- shout out and give honor to the greatest football player that ever lived, the one and only Tom Brady. The one and only Tom Brady. If you're a man, you should love coming to this church. Where else can you get football in the gospel at the same time on the same Sunday? And so I want to I want to I want to talk about Tom. Tom was a great, great player, the greatest football player to, to ever live, regardless of position. And I just want to run down the line for, for Tom. Tom, it's almost like Tom had two different careers. Tom actually got better the second half of his career in his 40s. Tom was better in the second half of his career than he was in the first half of his career. Tom Brady has more Super Bowl wins than any other player in NFL history. Tom Brady has more passing yards than any player in football history. No, not only that, Tom also has the most passing touchdowns in NFL history, and Tom also has the most playoff wins in NFL history. But the lore and the mystique of Tom Brady really doesn't have anything to do with his statistics, although his statistics would bear that he's the greatest football player of all time. But beyond the statistics, what made Tom Brady different? What added to the lore and the mystique of Brady was that Tom Brady could always make something out of nothing. Well, what made Tom Brady great was Tom could be in impossible situations, and because Tom was on the sideline, you knew that the impossible was possible. I would have hated to be a fan of a team that was playing against Tom Brady, and if the score was anywhere within three or four touchdowns, you never really could rest or relax. As long as there was time on the clock and Tom was on the field or on the sideline, you knew that something could always happen. Tom could, could make impossible situations possible. Can you imagine Tom Brady being your teammate if he's your quarterback? You can, can you imagine the insurance that you have with Tom being on the sideline? Tom proves this out time and time and time again. What made Tom so great? What made the lore and the mystique of Tom so, so noteworthy was that Tom was the king of the comeback. That no matter how bleak and how dark it looked, if Tom was on the field, Tom could make it do what it do. 
Tom was the greatest of all time at this. He was a magician on the field. Just when you thought it was over, it was like, here he comes. I, I can't imagine what it would be like to be a fan of another team and Tom Brady's on the sideline. You could never relax. You could never enjoy a victory until the clock struck zero. And this happened even up into his last game. The team is down by three or four touchdowns, something ridiculous, late in the game. And I'm looking at Tom. And Tom looks unbothered. Most teams, when they're down, it's a playoff game, and, and the game is significant. You see players fighting with each other. That, that doesn't happen on Tom's team unless it's like Antonio Brown, but that's besides the point. You, you, don't, you don't fight when you're Tom, on Tom's team when you're losing because if Tom's calm, I'm calm. Tom, Tom affected the whole atmosphere. His players had confidence even when they were losing because they could look at Tom, and they knew Tom was always faithful to do what Tom Brady does in Tom's last game they're down by three touchdowns and what happens Tom is on the bench looking unbothered but just like everyone knew and everyone expected Tom starts to do what Tom does and Tom makes what is impossible possible and if not for a horrible defense that gave up a last touchdown in the final minutes Tom would have done what Tom has always done, been faithful to be Tom Brady. Tom always made impossible situations possible. And I said that to say this because the church at Corinth in this time is living in an impossible situation. Let me give you a little background on Corinth. Corinth was a metropolis. Corinth was a major city. It's the capital uh, of the Roman province of Achaia. It's somewhat of an international business hub. The city of Corinth was situated between two harbors, one for land and one for sea trade. It, it was located on what's called an isthmus, which is a narrow strip of land with a sea on both sides, but it also linked two areas of land. And so this, this was a place where people came to do business. Cor Corinth was known for its prosperity. It was known for its wealth. People came from all over the world to come and do business business in Corinth and so you had people from all walks of life and all backgrounds that came to Corinth and so this city was diverse this city was culture everything was in Corinth with the wealth the culture and the people there was also this other thing there was also pleasure in Corinth you can work hard in Corinth but you can play even harder and so when I think about Corinth most scholars believe that Corinth was New York and LA and Las Vegas rolled all up into one New York, Las Vegas, and L.A. roll all up into one. If we call it today, it would be called the city that never sleeps. Or, or maybe we would refer to it as Sin City because what happens in Corinth stays in Corinth. Some of you are already excited. Like, I want to go there. Does it still exist? That sounds like my type of place. If you wanted sports, you were a sports lover. Every two years, they had the Isthmian Games, which was similar to the Olympics. So spectators came from all over the world to watch the Isthmian Games and athletes compete in all their favorite sports. It brought spectators from everywhere. But if sports isn't your thing, no problem. They also had pleasure. On the top of a massive hill, overlooking the city, was the temple of the goddess Aphrodite, who was the goddess of love. And 
and it housed all kinds of prostitutes. So if you love sex, illicit sex with anybody and everybody, you would go to Corinth and go to the temple and do whatever you wanted to do. It was so much so that if you were a promiscuous woman, you were referred to as a Corinthian girl. See, we have a different name for that these days. It starts, starts with a T, but I'm not saying what it is. But, but if pleasure is not your thing, no problem. They also had spirituality. There's a temple dedicated to all kinds of gods, worship of some sort of God. Even the emperor was to be expected in Corinth. So if you were spiritual and you needed spirituality, you would go to Corinth. You could worship all the gods at the same time. Idol worship was rampant in Corinth. Everybody worshiped something. Idolatry in Corinth was the order of the day. But the greatest idol in Corinth wasn't sex it wasn't sports it wasn't spirituality the greatest idol in Corinth was the idol of success the greatest idol was success and worship of self most people came to Corinth to chase success People competed around the clock to make it happen all the time for financial gain and for social status. The city was all about ambition, ambition, ambition. People were more concerned about their careers and their businesses more than anything else. The main idol was individualism. All other idols and false worship came under this umbrella. Because if you wanted to worship at, at, the, at the altar of Aphrodite, the goddess of love, really your, your, your going after illicit sex was just worshiping at the idol of self. Or, 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 or if you wanted to go watch sports ad nauseum and all that you cared about was sitting in front of a remote TV with the remote in your hand and playing sports and playing sports on video games and trading cards and being a part of fantasy leagues and that was your life and you really didn't care about being successful or anything else, really all you were doing was worshiping at the idol of self. If you wanted your own sort of hodgepodge of spirituality, you wanted to mix this God with that God and a little bit of this and a little bit of that and a little bit of Jesus and a little bit of Buddha and a little bit of Krishna and a little bit of uh, Allah. You want to put all of that together. All you're really doing is worshiping at the idol of self. And this is what is happening at Corinth. Aphrodite, money, notoriety, all are under the umbrella of idolatry of self and individualism but if I'm really taking this into consideration this sounds no different than where we are today with the ever-increasing temptation to worship at the altar of self for those who follow Jesus to even turn the message of good news to be something that is to serve me and me alone Jesus died to just serve my needs so he'll be there whenever I call him. And when I want to put him away and put him on the shelf and I want to do my own thing, I'll do my own thing. But I'll use him when I need to see fit to use him. And with all of this darkness going on in Corinth, can you imagine the big city lights, the temple of the goddess of Aphrodite in the backdrop? You, you can see the red light district happening. You can see the downtown district with all of the high rises and buildings. You can feel the hustle and bustle of downtown in Corinth. You can hear the, uh, the, the camels because they got taxi cabs, so you can't hear like, like brakes squeaking or nothing like that. F follow my drift. You get what I'm trying to say here. Come on, man. Get in, get in the picture with me. Feel, feel me on this. 
You, you can imagine all of this, all of this darkness, all of this darkness in this place. And Paul thought, what better place to plant a church and shine the light of the gospel than one of the most darkest, immoral places in the world? Paul believed that the light of the gospel could shine even through Corinthian darkness. And I want to say this today, that no matter where you live, no matter what city you're in, no matter how dark it is, no matter how illicit it is, no matter even if they think that Mickey is king, Paul says, shine the light of the gospel and it will cut through the darkness. And so Paul plants the church and we can find the origins of this Corinthian church in Acts chapter 18. If you want to take notes, you want to see the origins of Corinth. Chapter, uh, Acts chapter 18 tells us the origins. Paul comes to Corinth and he meets a couple who are also tent makers, which is Paul's occupation. This couple's name is Aquila and Priscilla. They are a married couple that Paul meets. They house Paul while Paul goes to the synagogue every day to compete with the Jews and to preach the gospel in the synagogues until he gets kicked out out of the synagogue then he lives with a guy named Gaius Justus and uh, Titus Justus and with at Titus Justus's house he lives next door to the synagogue and Paul is also preaching the gospel to the Gentiles and from that people from all backgrounds all walks of life male female rich and poor hear the gospel in Corinth and all of these little churches become uh, about all of these churches get planted in Corinth. And so here's the thing with planting a church in that environment, there was such a great temptation for the attitudes and the values of the culture to dominate the climate in the church. So there's immense pressure for these brand new followers of Jesus to assimilate, to assimilate their newfound faith with the way of the world that is outside of the kingdom of God. Paul had planted a church in the city, but the city had gotten inside of the church. And so Paul is going to address several problems in Corinth, and we'll address those too. So here's some of the things that Paul addresses in Corinth, and here's what we'll address. Paul is going to address marriage and divorce, singleness, sex and sexuality, spiritual gifts, women in ministry. Do I have the freedom to drink what I want, when I want, where I want, with who I want? C can I sleep with who I want, when I want, where I want, and for how long I want? C can I use my spiritual gifts however I want? Sh shall I speak in tongues or can I prophesy? Paul is going to address all of that. And then towards the end, in chapter 15, Paul is going to say none of that crap matters if the resurrection didn't happen. And so this is all or some of the things that Paul is going to cover in the book of 1 Corinthians. But the most pressing issue and one that was emanating from a deep and ever-growing presence to compete for success and honor in the world was disunity and division within the church. And so at this time, there are deep factions happening within the church that is a serious threat to their call to be united. God didn't call them to be united, just to be united, not, not for some sort of getting along, some purpose of having some fake utopia, getting along just to get along. And we see each other and we give each other a fake hug and a fake a hello, how you doing? And we really don't like each other. No, that's not what he's talking about. They had already been united in Christ and therefore they had a corporate call to witness to the world what a love relationship with God looks like. And so they're not just getting along to get along or being united for the sake 
sake of utopia, they're being united because it is a part of the nature of who they are in Christ. They've been united in Christ, but they've also been united to each other. And if they don't get along and if they're not united, one thing is going to happen. They ain't going to make it because if you're not with other believers, you can't survive in this world by yourself. Secondly, if they're not united, then they rob God of glory because people need to see what love relations look like first by Christians. So it is important that they be united because it has spiritual and eternal implications. And Paul says that they need to be united. And Paul is writing them because he doesn't want them to ruin their public witness in a city that needs to hear and see the gospel. And some people had come to Paul from Chloe's house or from Chloe's people and told Paul that there were robberies taking place in the church. And people were attaching themselves to personalities more than they were the person in the work of Christ. And so they were just breaking off into factions based on whatever leadership personality they were more attracted to. So they had camps, factions, cliques in the church. The disunity was nothing other than a sign that the attitude and the climate of the culture around them was prevalent in the church. So with people in the church doing all they could to compete and position themselves to be near the influential and the wealthy in the church and for the wealthy to try to compete to get next to the influential, everybody was doing nothing other than a snapshot of what was already happening in the culture. Because in the culture, your thing was, let me try to get rich and let me try to connect who connect to who's wealthy so I can put myself on and people were doing the same thing now as new redeemed believers they thought because they were competitive in the world they had to be competitive within the church and and Paul is addressing this the competitive drive to be important and be seen was driving division in the church let me say this again the competitive drive to be important and be seen was driving divisions in the church the culture of competition was killing the camaraderie that Christ died for let me say this again the culture of competition was killing the camaraderie that Christ died for Christ centered camaraderie is better than competition so Paul writes to them to remind them that the way of the kingdom is not to exalt yourself but to humble yourself that the way up is actually down and so Paul appeals for unity he appeals for unity how else can a Christian call to live for God in the world thrive survive outside of the love support and fruitful community of other Christians let me tell you something it's not possible but with God it is possible and so Paul appeals for unity not on the basis of them trying harder to get along but reminding them that that by their union with Christ it is inherent in their DNA to be united and to get along it's not something that they have to do it's something that they already are and so think about this do siblings who are born of the same mother and father, have to force each other to have the same DNA? No, it naturally happens. They don't work to be united by their DNA. DNA. It happens because they were born to the same parents. And if that's true in the natural, how much more so in the spiritual? We share the same father. We worship the same God. The same grace that saved you is the same grace that saved your brother and your sister in the Lord. We are united. We are one in Christ and Christ ain't divided. And so neither should we be. And here's what Paul says. Unity begins with God. 
Verses 4 through 9 says this. I always thank my God for you because the grace of God given to you in Christ Jesus, that you were enriched in him in every way, in all speech and all knowledge. Now, in this way, the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you so that you don't lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. He will also strengthen you. Underline that word strengthen you if you're taking notes because it means something. He will also strengthen you to the end so that you will be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 9 is so critical, so critical to our understanding. God is faithful. God is faithful. You were called by him into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And here's what Paul is saying. The people that had once been a part of an immoral culture has now been radically saved by God's grace. They were once involved in all sorts of immorality and idolatry and that came along with the atmosphere of the city. But now they were God's sons and daughters saved by grace. And those that once lived by the motto, shout out 50, get rich or die trying, God has now made them spiritually wealthy. In verse 5 says this, here's how I know they're spiritual wealthy. You are enriched in him in every way. That's what it says in verse 5. You are enriched. That word means something. Enriched literally means he has made them spiritually rich or spiritually wealthy. They have everything that they need in Christ, including spiritual gifts. So the spiritual riches that God gave them, they didn't have to work for or compete for. It was all due to God's grace. It came from outside of them. And I'm sure to them that didn't make any sense because they were used to competing for stuff. But in God is given to us by his grace. We don't earn it. We don't deserve it. We don't work for it. It's not a merit thing. It's simply given to us by the grace of God. And they must perceive that the spiritual riches that they have in Christ is far more valuable than material riches that they were trying to get outside. And let me say this. Hear this with spiritual ears. I need you to grow up and hear this. I'm not saying that it's wrong to desire, to desire to be well off or to have means. But it is wrong for that to be your idol. For success to be more important than your salvation. Because if you've been redeemed and you come up with a business idea or you somehow work your way up the corporate ladder by hard work and faithfulness, but in your heart you're only doing this to leverage it for the glory of Christ, there's nothing wrong with it. Because if you become a whatever heir, a, a bazillion heir or a thousand heir or whatever heir, the important thing isn't that you become that, but the important thing is that you leverage that which you've been given for the glory of God and that you use it to, to glorify him and to serve other people. And so Paul is saying the difference is when they were chasing it out there, it was for their own self-interest. But now in here, they've been spiritually made rich, not for their own self-interest, but for the glory of God and for the service of other people. And Paul says, I've made you rich in that me, in that area. You have everything you need, including spiritual gifts. When God saved them, he endowed them with spiritual gifts. And particularly this church was so good that they had wonderful speech gifts and gifts of knowledge, meaning that these were some tongue-talking, prophesying, preaching people up in this church, but they also understood the mysteries of God. They had their theology on lock. And so in this book, Paul doesn't even really address issues of theology because they understand it. But he is addressing issues that now that they've been spiritually made wealthy, they could use their spiritual gifts the same way that they would wrongly, destructively use their, their material wealth in the world. You know that you can mismanage material wealth, but you also can mismanage spiritual wealth. Because God can give you a gift 
and you use it for the world, but you don't use it in the house of the Lord. Does that make sense? You out there club promoting. You the flyer king. Do people still do that? I don't know if they do, but when I was, when I was, when I was coming up back, back in my prime, you can go outside in your car. Oh, my God, don't let it be wet or rainy or misty. And they put that club flyer right in your window. I don't, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kill whoever did this because do you know how hard it is to get a club sticker off your window after it sat there over, overnight in an apartment complex? But you got the, the gift to, to go out and make it move and make it happen to have thousands of people show up at the party. But you won't invite one single soul to church. And Paul is giving them all gifts. And here's what I need you to know. Every believer and follower of Jesus is gifted in some way. You have a spiritual gift. When you were saved, God granted you a spiritual gift. You have a spiritual gift. You may say, I don't know what that is. Here's my advice to you. Serve, serve, serve in whatever capacity they need you to until you figure out what it is. But serve. Oftentimes, your gift is discovered by finding out what you ain't really good at. Man, I'm, I'm not really good at putting them scriptures on the screen. I just be texting people. I forget Pastor calling for scriptures. I'm days off. In a, that is not my department. But I had to find that out. But I was serving, doing whatever they needed me to do. I was working in children's ministry. And I just realized, well, I don't think I like doing this anymore. I don't, I don't think I like this. I don't think I like everybody's kids. Okay, I, think I, I don't think I'm called to do this. Then you figure out, oh, I can put some stuff together. I can get some people and put them together and I can, I can administrate some stuff. So that, that's my gift. But I figured it out by serving where they needed me first. But oftentimes people come in a church thinking, I got some gifts and I'm going to just serve wherever I want. And I'm going to sit on the sideline until I find the thing that's perfect for me. That's not the way of the kingdom. That's the way of arrogance and pride, not humility. Humility says, if you need me to plug in the speakers, I don't even know what a plug looks like in a speaker. But I will do it because you asked me to do it because I'm here to serve at the behest of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And God has given all of us spiritual gifts, but it's up to us to serve enough to figure out what they are and serve with those spiritual gifts so that we can build up the rest of the body. And he says in verse 7, you don't lack any spiritual gift as you wait eagerly for our return for the revelation of Jesus Christ. Meaning this, if I'm waiting on him, I don't wait doing nothing, I wait doing something. Christian waiting looks like something. Christian waiting looks active. Christian waiting doesn't look like you're waiting in the lobby at the doctor's office. Christian waiting means I'm actively engaged waiting for his return. I'm not sure when he's coming back, but I am certain that he is coming. But in the meantime, I'm going to steward the time, the talent, and the resources that he has given me, and I'm going to wait faithfully. There's a thing called faithful waiting, and this is what we, we as Christians have been called to do. Our waiting doesn't look like laziness. Our waiting looks active. And so he says this, Verse 8, while you're serving, he'll strengthen you to that end so that you'll be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 9, it says God is faithful. This is so beautiful. This is so beautiful. Before Paul addresses all of those issues that he addresses in 1 Corinthians, the rest of the book, he lays a solid foundation. Because the word, when he says, verse 8, he will also strengthen you. Here's what Paul is saying. It comes from a Greek word that means to make firm 
or establish. When he says he will also strengthen you, it is a Greek word, babo, that means to make firm or establish. I need you to know this. I know, Pastor, I don't want to know these Greek words, but I need you to know this because this is so important. The Greek word there means to make firm or establish. And what Paul is saying is God has placed a firm foundation under your feet that even though you live in Corinth and you may be tempted and it may seem to overcome and overtake you, God is strengthening you. He's put solid rock under your feet. You will not fall. You will not fail, not because of you, but because of him. And then in verse 9, it makes sense because he says, God is faithful, meaning this, our faithfulness to God is not dependent upon us. Our faithfulness to God is actually dependent upon him. He is more faithful than we ever could be. Our faithfulness is just a response to his faithfulness, and it's a byproduct of the strength that he's given us. So if you have strength, it's God's strength. If you are faithful, it's not because you're faithful, but it's because God is faithful and God is more faithful than we could ever be. And so Paul starts off this letter with the faithfulness of God that in spite of all the problems that he'll address later, it's a good reminder that God is faithful from beginning to end through seasons of growth and maturity and through seasons of our immaturity. The same God that has called you is the same God that is going to sustain you if you are in Christ no matter what happens, no matter how many times you fail or fall off or seem spiritually dry. If you are in Christ, you are secure in God's love and care for you. Oftentimes we feel like, I made a mistake. God don't love me no more. I made a mistake. God ain't feeling me this week. Ooh, I messed up this week. I said something I shouldn't have said. God ain't rocking with me this week, so let me just kind of keep my distance. That's not how God is. If you've been in life groups and you went the first week, shameless plug, unshameless plug, if you went to life groups, you would understand that God's heart for us is not a pointing finger but open arms, that God is faithful, that God accepts and receives us. He transforms us, but he does accept and receive us. The faithfulness of God is so vital to understand for every Christian because everything that follows that Paul will rebuke them and correct them about won't be expected to be done in their own strength and willpower, but it will happen because of the strength and the grace of God. And here's what he says, God is faithful to them because he's called them into fellowship with Jesus. He says, if you have fellowship with the son, that means you also have fellowship and union with other Christians. So like I said, if you have the same DNA as your biological siblings, you also have it with your spiritual siblings. And so this unity that he calls us to, it is not something we have to force and make happen. It already is. Dietrich Bonhoeffer makes this clear in his book, Life Together. And here's what Bonhoeffer says, and I quote, Christian brotherhood is not an ideal which we must realize. It is rather a reality created by God in Christ in which we may participate. The more clearly we learn to recognize that the ground and strength and promise of all our fellowship is in Christ alone, the more serenely shall we think of our fellowship and pray for it and hope for it. He's literally saying we should be praying and hoping for deeper fellowship with each other, not trying to avoid it, but more so leaning into it and praying for it and hoping for it and seeing it as a gift as opposed to a curse God put us together on purpose and we are to love one another and do life with one another and grow with one another not walk by each other and not speak somebody say amen 
And so with that foundation established that God is faithful and he'll strengthen them, Paul leans in and calls them to be what they already are, united. And what they thought was just a matter of people not getting along with each other was just really a huge glaring sign of their immaturity. They had a misguided view of their own maturity. They assumed because they were spiritually gifted that they were mature. Just because you're gifted at something doesn't mean you're mature at it. God can gift you and you can still be the most immature person walking around. Great spiritual gifts are not a sign and indication of spiritual maturity. It just means you're gifted. Because I can pray and prophesy, I'm mature. Or because I can preach and I can sing, I'm mature. And what Paul is saying, that if you can pray and prophesy and preach and, speak, and preach and sing, but can't speak to your sister in the body of Christ, you are not as mature as you think you are. Let me say that again for the people in the back that can't hear me. And what Paul is saying is that if you can pray and prophesy, if you can preach and sing with the best of them, but you can't speak to your brother, you are not as mature as you think you are. That was for the Baptist in the room. With that being said, he says in verses 10 through 17, now I urge you, brothers and sisters, in the name of Jesus, not on your own accord, but in his name, all of you agree on what you say. There be no divisions among you. Be united with the same understanding and the same conviction. And here's what is happening. What I'm saying is this, because Chloe's people have come to me and told me y'all acting crazy, verse 12. What I'm saying is this, one of you say I belong to Paul. One of you say I belong to Apollos. One of you say I belong to Cephas. One of you say I belong to Christ. One of you say I belong to Pastor John. One of you say I belong to Pastor Trey. One of you say I belong to Deacon Terry. One of you say I belong to Kaniga. One of you say I belong to Paul's crucified for me. One say Pastor John's crucified. No, none of that is true. Were you baptized in my name? I wasn't crucified for you. And I won't be. And if the option was there, I don't think I still would. But Christ did. And Christ ain't divided. And so with that being said, Paul says, I, I baptized a few people, but I wasn't even really keeping up with who I baptized because that's not the most important thing. The most important thing was that I was preaching the gospel, pointing people to Jesus. And so what is, here's what he's trying to say, that unity begins with God. I urge you, brothers and sisters, in the name of Jesus. He doesn't say, I, I urge you just to get along. He says, in the name of Jesus. That means something, that you do this in his name. You do this in him. He is where the unity comes from. He is where the strength comes from. He is where the patience comes from. He is where the forgiveness comes from. He's where the temperance comes from. He's where the self-control comes from. He's where the bad attitude turns into a good attitude comes from. It is in him. Get along in Jesus' name. Families should speak to each other in Jesus' name. Two sisters should be able to get together and speak in Jesus' name, whether biological or spiritual. Brothers should now be with each other, whether it's spiritual or biological, in Jesus' name. We're not doing it on our own accord, but if we are in Christ, we are united to do it in his power and in his strength and in his name. Get along, people. He says, agree on what you say. There'd be no divisions. United with the same understanding, the same conviction. Here's what he's saying. Be, he, he's calling for unity, not uniformity. See, some of you want uniformity. You don't want unity. You want an all-black church. You want uniformity. You, you want your own type of song every single Sunday. You don't want unity. You want uniformity. 
You want the same sort of people from the same kind of socioeconomic bracket that, that you want in your church because you don't want unity. You want uniformity. And God is calling us not to uniformity. There should be different people in this church. There should be people from all over the globe in this church like there is. It should be a place for male and female, rich and poor, well-to-do in your career and college students or no college at all. Everybody should be under able to come together and serve each other under the umbrella of Christ Jesus. There's no big eyes and little use in the kingdom. We're all equal at the foot of the cross. And this is what he's saying. He says, understand, speak, have convictions about your core beliefs. We should all at our core believe some of the same things. And here's some of the things that we should believe. Do we believe that you, and you can say yes to this. Say yes to each one of these because I just feel like doing this. Do, do, do we believe that Jesus is the son of God? Do we believe that he was born of a virgin birth? Do we believe that he is co-eternal and co-equal with the Father and the Holy Spirit? Do we believe that he lived a sinless life? Do we believe that he was crucified on the cross for our sins? Do we believe that he was dead and buried? Do we believe that he was raised from the grave? Do we believe that in him, in his finished work, that we have salvation, life, and forgiveness in his name? If we believe all of those things, then we should get along because we have a commonality together. The gospel grounds our unity. It serves as a basis for us getting along and everything else that we have preferences about is secondary. But rivalries are still happening in the church. And people are like, no, I'm, I'm, I'm with Paul. I'm, I belong to Paul. I, Paul is the church planner. He's, a, he's, he's the gospel globe trotter. He plants churches everywhere and he planted this church. So I'm, I'm rocking with Paul. And the other one's like, no. Nah. I like that new shot Apollos. He's so eloquent in his speech and his sermons are so good. I'm rocking with the dude that can speak the best because in our culture, we, we prize people who can speak in an eloquent manner. I'm, I'm, with, I'm, with, I'm, with, I'm with Apollos. No, no, no. I'm with Cephas. Cephas there literally is Peter. Peter who was with Jesus. Jesus' spokesperson, the disciple's spokesperson. I'm with Peter. He was with the risen, with the risen Savior. So I'm down with Peter. I'm his camp. And then there's the other arrogant people like, nah, I don't rock with none of them. I'm only with Jesus. I don't need the church. I just do Jesus and Jesus alone. I can have my own relationship with Jesus. I don't need no church. I don't need y'all little preachers and y'all little leaders. Matter of fact, I got several pastors. I listen to this one. 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 I got me a spiritual buffet of sermons every single day. I can pick my favorite preacher, and I ain't got to leave the comfort of my own home. So I don't rock with none of them. I'm team Jesus only. That sounds humble, but it's super arrogant. Because that's a Christianity that's suitable for their own comfort. Because it's absent of community. They want to hear a sermon. And maybe they'll participate in some music sometimes. But I'm not really engaged and I don't really care what's going on because I'm just team Jesus. And Paul asked him three questions. Is Christ divided? No. Was Paul crucified for you? No. Were you baptized in Paul's name? No. And what Paul is trying to get them to see is that. No human leader should be exalted above Christ. Jesus should be the focal point of every church and every ministry. Let me say this again. Jesus should be the focal point of every ministry and every church. We can learn to honor a particular leader without worshiping one. Worship belongs to Christ alone. He is the one that purchased the church with his own blood. There obviously is celebrity culture happening in this church just like it happens in our church today. I go to this person's church or I go to that person's church. 
When you tell people what church you go to, if you name the pastor first, that means you might be teetering on celebrity culture. I go to insert famous person's names, church. But shouldn't a church be known by the body of believers and by Jesus and not by the celebrity pastor? I'm not saying something's wrong, but God becomes popular and famous and his name gets out there and he's done nothing to do with it. It just happened. I'm not saying that. But what I'm saying is when people start worshiping their leader more than they worship Jesus. That's dangerous. In the age of social media, it is natural that there are celebrity preachers now more than ever. Because there only used to be one or two celebrity preachers because it was no internet. So you just one or two dudes in your town, that's the big shot. You go to his church or go to other dude church, right? But now, because of your phone, you can go wherever you want to go and listen to whoever you want to listen to. And sometimes because of that, a person can worship at the altar of their favorite preacher. Hear this. I want to give you some wisdom today. Listen to me. Hear me, y'all. Hear me. Hear me. Please hear me. This is so important. You can become such a fan and a disciple of your favorite preacher that when the leaders in your local church delivers a word, you struggle it, you shrug it off and you perceive that it's not valuable because it doesn't come from a platform that you deem is valuable. Does that make sense? Not because what your pastor says isn't true or beneficial, but because it doesn't come from the platform that you think is bigger and larger. Because now you're not basing it off of substance, you're basing it off of likes. So because he got a lot of likes, it must, it must, mean, it must be the word of the Lord. It, it, it must mean that God validates it. It don't have Christ in it. It's literally, it literally, it's literally just giving me some good advice about my life. It's literally telling me what I should be doing to get better relationships and a better job and come up and level up and all the other ups. That's all it's doing. But because people are liking it, people are following it, people are retweeting it, people are sharing it, this must be the word and the will of the Lord. But my proud pastor, I mean, he cool. It's all right. It's cool. Yeah, all right. Yeah, not again. But it ain't Ralph, though. It's a take from Kanye. It ain't Ralph. Listen, you can listen to other stuff. If you're a member of a local body, I'm not telling you not to do that. But what I'm saying is it should be supplemental. And here's why it's important. Here's why. What happens is, if you're hearing a voice in another place constantly and that becomes your primary source of spiritual growth, Here's what it does. It can subconsciously, without you knowing it, create the potential for disunity in your heart. Because although you hear or wherever your local church is, you're wishing things would be like it was there. And you perceive because it's bigger, it's better. And not, nothing wrong with having a big church, nothing wrong. If, if God says, Multiple thousands of people here. There's nothing wrong with having a big church, but sometimes you got to know the difference. Something might not be big, it just might be swollen. And I'm talking about this next week. We got to stop getting to this. We, 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 we love style over substance. And substantive preaching ain't giving you good advice. It's giving you the cross. It's giving you Jesus crucified, dead, buried, but raised from the grave. If it's not grounded in that, it ain't really a sermon. It's just a good speech. Here's another thing, more specifically to the text. Another aspect is that in your own church, if you can only receive from one leader 
or you make it your aim to get close to one leader so you can associate with the person who has the greatest influence so you can make your own spiritual come up. There's danger in that because now you're serving your own self-interest. But if he ain't preaching, then I ain't coming. That's a, that's a glaring sign of immaturity. I, and I'm, I'm guilty because when I was in my 20s, I'm ashamed of this. <laughs> I'm so ashamed. I'm, embar- I'm embarrassed. I'm embarrassed. I would roll up in the parking lot. And if my pastor's car went backed up by the door to the green room, and the, it was a long driveway up to the, it was a picture, long driveway. But you got to a point where you got up to the parking, you could, you could turn right around, back way, because it's, it's one going in and one coming out just like this. And if his car wasn't there, because you can't turn around in the grass and cut across a little grass meeting. You had to go all the way up. But I'm guilty of a couple Sundays, a couple, couple midweek services. But I didn't see his car parked. I turned did the U-turn. I drove 45 minutes to go to church and turned around because my favorite preacher wasn't preaching. And I'm embarrassed because that was a sign of my immaturity. Not knowing that whoever was in his place could have had something that was radically life-changing for me. But because I thought it could only come from one voice, I couldn't receive from other gifts in the house. And here's what I'm saying. Be mature enough to know that if the main pastor ain't preaching, whatever that means, or the main singer ain't singing, whatever that means, doesn't mean that God ain't using it. What matters is not style but substance we have to grow up in that Paul wasn't a great preacher Paul preached one point and a dude fell out of a window broke his neck and died because he was bored by Paul's preaching true story Paul didn't have style y'all like for real terrible Paul didn't have style Paul had substance and Paul fought against and I'm done fought against this celebrity culture in the church because when they were clamoring for Paul Paul could have said you're right you do belong to Paul Paul says I ain't baptized none of you I baptize a couple people but don't come up here trying to clamor and get in my camp because what happens is you, whether you intend to or not, create factions in a body of believers. So this word is more valid than this word. And so you try, try to take this leader and try to put it against this leader. You try to see if they say the same thing. But if he doesn't say what he says, then you say, ooh, he didn't say what this said. So now you try to play them against each other. And all you're doing is creating division in the church and working for Satan. But we have to grow up beyond that. And Paul calls us to be united. Who leads life group can't save you. Who leads worship this Sunday can't save you. Who is preaching this Sunday, the Sunday that you decide to show up to church, can't save you. Who leads the welcome team can't save you. The only thing that can save you is Jesus. And this is Paul's point. The issues that they were clamoring for were not primary, they were secondary. 
And Paul says, I've been called to preach the gospel. Paul was saying this, yeah, I baptize you, but baptism ain't the most important thing. The most important thing is that I point you to Jesus. And if a person in the, in the local church is pointing you to Christ, that is all that matters. That is all that matters. Because Jesus has called us to be united. And I want to read John 17, verses 20 through 23. Here's what Jesus said. John 17, verses 20 through 23. I'm praying not only for these disciples, but also for who will ever believe in me through their message. I pray that they will all be one, just as you and I are one, as you are in me. Father, I am in you. And may they be in us so that the world will believe you sent me. I have given them the glory you gave me so they may be one as we are one. I am in them and you are in me. And may they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. The world will know that Jesus is who he said he is based off the way that Christians love one another. Our unity is evangelistic. I'm going to read this last quote and I'm done for the fourth time. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said this, What determines our brotherhood or sisterhood is not is what that man is by reason of Christ. Our community with one another consists solely in what Christ has done to both of us. This is true not merely at the beginning as though in the course of time something else were to be added to our community. It remains so for all the future and to all eternity. I have community with others and I shall continue to have it only through Jesus Christ. The more genuine and the deeper our community becomes, the more will everything else between us recede. The more clearly and purely will Jesus Christ and his work become the one and only thing that is vital between us. That's so good. We have one another only through Christ, but through Christ we have one another holy for eternity. That's beautiful. So Paul calls us to be united as one. In Christ Jesus, which is the most important thing. We've all been called to live in community. We've all been called to be united to something and someone. That something and someone is God. But there was no way that we could force unity on God. There had to be someone that reconciled us back to him and put us together again. Now, I want to tell you today, if you're, you're not in community with God, there's only one way to get in community with him, and it's through his son, Jesus. And this is what he did for us on the, on the cross. Without trusting in the crucified and risen Messiah, we can't be united to the most important person there ever is, which is God. Our earthly disunity in our families, amongst our siblings, amongst our spouses, in our churches, are a sign that there is something off with our vertical. Because if we can get along with him, we can get along with them. If we are in the body of Christ, we should be able to coexist and live and thrive and survive and function and grow together as one. That's not to say that things will be perfect. That's not to say that our preferences will be what we get. It's not to say that, but it is to say that we have a commonality that binds us together, that, that we've been put together because we are one in Christ. 
And so if we have that commonality, then that means that it is possible for us to get along. And if we can get along and if we are united, then we can survive and thrive and live on mission in the world for the world to see. But it starts with God first. And he will strengthen us and he is faithful to us. It's an invitation for us to put our trust in him. I want to say this. If you have another believer and you can't get along and you can't talk to them and they can't talk to you and there's beef, I'm not saying that you need to be best friends. But you should be able to sit down together. If you find yourself coming into church, I can't stand her. I can't stand him. That is a glaring red sign that you might be immature. And that this is a call and opportunity for you to grow up. No one should walk into church and say, I can't stand. Because at one point God said, I can't stand you. And then Jesus says, wait a minute, daddy. I can solve this problem. Whatever beef you got with them, take it out on me. Whatever reason you got for not getting along with them, no matter what they've done to you, daddy, I know it was egregious. Take it out on me. He took it out on his son. And in the process, the son grabbed us and grabbed the father's hands and put them two together. And we have been stuck with him ever since. And nothing can tear us apart. And if he did that between God and us, he can do that between you and your brother or you and your sister in Jesus' name. Jesus' name. God is faithful to us. And what was impossible is possible. Let's pray. We hope you enjoyed today's message. If it was a blessing to you, please consider visiting our website, outpouringorlando.com, to connect with us and to also give financial support. If you are ever in the Orlando area, we would love to serve and worship with you. Have a wonderful week.